Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, hello. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. This is a Sunday episode. I hope you're having a good weekend. My guest today is Rachel Long. She has a new poetry collection, her debut poetry collection, out in the United States of America from Tin House. The book is called My Darling from the Lions, and it was published in the UK by Picador, and was named a Best Poetry Book of 2020 by The Guardian. It was also shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize, the Costa Poetry Award, and the Forward Felix Dennis Prize for Best First Collection. My Darling from the Lions is about coming of age. It's about femininity and divinity and black identity. Do you see what I did there? It's about love, it's about relationships, it's about men behaving badly. It's got everything. My Darling from the Lions by Rachel Long. Uh, Rachel is from London, born and raised, and she is the founder of the Octavia Poetry Collective for Women of Color, which is housed in uh, the South Bank Center in London. It was delightful meeting her. We had fun talking. I think I kept her up late because of the time difference, but she was a, uh, a good sport, and I'm excited to share that conversation with you in just a moment. Today's episode is made possible by Harper Books, publisher of Snowflake, the debut novel by Louise Nealon, an international bestseller. Roddy Doyle calls it, quote, mad and wonderful. This is a powerful and haunting debut by a very talented young writer from Ireland. Snowflake is a novel about love and family and uh, depression and joy and coming of age in the 21st century. And I loved it. I read it. It is a delightful book. It, it made me feel like I was in Ireland, made me feel like I knew these people. I was kind of on vacation in some way. 
It's a wonderful book. Snowflake by Louise Nealon, available now from Harper. So I also have a uh, record correction to make. I need to correct the record. Uh, A couple of episodes ago, I announced the uh, news that my novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is going to be published uh, next year. So very happy news. IG Publishing will be putting it out in trade paperback in uh, May, I believe, of 2022. And as I was delivering the news, I said, you know, I said a few thank yous to people who had helped me along the way, reading the manuscript, uh, offering feedback and so on and so forth. And I totally forgot to thank my social media director, Joseph Grantham. And I need to address that here. Joseph Grantham also read the manuscript and gave his feedback uh, as I was, you know, getting the thing together. And I think it was because, you know, for those of you who follow the show on social media or who are aware of this news or who get my email newsletter, then you may know that uh, there was a spoof, like a mockumentary that we made to celebrate the podcast's 10th birthday, which happened about a week ago. And Joseph spearheaded that effort that uh, mockumentary and so I think I kind of had him batched in my head at that time with the mockumentary and I want to say I talked about it and thanked him for that so I kind of had like my thank yous for him in that category and then I you know I don't know I just didn't have my shit together I wasn't organized and I goofed and I forgot to thank him for being an early reader of my book and I felt like shit afterwards like once the episode went live (laughs) I was imagining him listening to that monologue like waiting for his name to be acknowledged and then being like crestfallen and uh like tearing up a picture of the two of us or something you know what i mean but we have spoken i have apologized and i am now doing it publicly because i uh, dearly love joseph grantham he's the best social media director in literary podcasting hands down i'm lucky to have him So uh, before we begin today uh, with Rachel Long and I in conversation, I would like to share with you uh, some audio of Rachel reading a poem from her uh, acclaimed debut collection entitled My Darling from the Lions. So this is Rachel Long reading a poem called Hotel Art Barcelona. This is Rachel Long. We're eating roses on a rooftop, the med beneath us. They serve clouds here too, I say. Light starter, wink. Are they fluffy or black? The waiter doesn't answer. Every table is white except ours. We sit at a naked woodblock, antique. There's enough of an age gap here. Need they have added 200 years. The razor clams arrive in straight lines. What's the matter? We discuss kids. Maybe it's the wine or because my belly is beginning to push against the bones of my dress. You say, I don't think I'll identify with a brown sun. Excuse me. I stand. 
spill your sparkling water, you only notice your steak. Contorting myself three ways in the toilet mirror, I decide I won't look like this forever. I don't even look like this now. Dessert is air from a porcelain pump. What if he has your eyes? I dare, after another glass. Back in our borrowed bathroom, I throw up, rose foam, a blade of grass. Who says he isn't a daughter? I join you on the balcony. You hold me from behind, lean us over, count. We're as many stories up as our age gap. Why do you always have to? Shush, you lift my dress. I shoulder wet my legs. Is love not this? Gripping a fence in the sky. Okay, that is Rachel Long reading a poem entitled Hotel Art Barcelona from her debut collection, My Darling from the Lions, available now from Tin House. Uh, as I said, we had so much fun talking. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here she is, folks. This is Rachel Long and her poetry collection, One More Time is called My Darling from the Lions. Uh, I can have a line kicking around my head for years and not really write down or a certain sort of feeling or a, I suspect things a lot, but then I don't, I, 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 I won't write it down. So it can be this sort of like hunch or, or a line. Um, I don't, the the sort of trance state can happen but I think it probably happens like all writers like that's the sort of that's what we always want perhaps or want to pursue it's like inspiration it's like lightning bolt moment it's like we can all idealize that but most of the time yeah it will be a sort of a cursor but I just won't personally like I just won't look at that cursor because it will drive me nuts so I'll just go about the world like the mistakes or whatever that I might then come to write down later on. Um, I'm a slow writer as well. I'm a really slow writer. Um, and I, I I think that, so the, I don't know, but I just came out of a, a workshop on form and we were talking about poetic, different poetic formalisms. And um, one of the guest writers said something really interesting. And just from what you said, Brad, it's like the, the like a prose line and a poetry line, we're, we're still writing in form. It's just that you'll go to the end of the page margin and, and we'll will lineate it and have these certain other considerations but how form is still you know like us arranging language in a certain way so I don't know he's, he's Jack, the poet Jack Underwood he said that this evening so I'm kind of fresh thinking about that in a different way that maybe there's not much difference at all it's just the way in which we arrange things on a page yeah that's a good point and it's funny because I was thinking about the appeal of your collection and what I love about it is that I felt like I, in some ways, was reading a memoir. Um, I love the narrative aspect of it. 
um, the way that it's organized into these sections. Um, you know, there's the section called open, the section called the lineage of wigs, and then a section called dolls. They all feel distinct, thematically grouped. There's a, a sense of, uh, temporality, if, if that's the word, a sense of like time, you know, I feel like I'm traveling mm -hmm. through time with you. And I think that it's arranged in a roughly chronological fashion, but there's a lot going on. Uh, it isn't that this is just simple narrative and autobiography. Um, there's a lot of depth to it, but it's accessible and you're allowing the reader in, which not all poets do, or at least, mm -hmm. you know, I think there is a certain kind of discerning reader who's really, really smart and good at reading poetry who could probably access just about anything. But for me, uh, some poetry really is really challenging and I can read it and be like, well, you know, something happened, but I don't know what, <laughs> what it was. And that was, but it totally missed me, you know, if I'm just being candid and I didn't feel that with you. And I don't, I just want to be careful to say that I'm not trying to minimize what you've done or to, make it sound uh, simplistic or something. Cause that's not at all the case. I can tell that you labored over it and I know that you have um, a lot on your mind, but it was just a pleasure to read, which is a credit to, I think probably the fact that you're a slow writer. I, I have this theory that slow writing makes for easy reading. Like the, <laughs> if somebody writes something too quickly, it's probably, this is how I like to comfort myself. If it came, you know, if it came to them too quickly, then it's going to be hard to read. And the end product is probably not going to be as good. <laughs> yes, I will. I will say yes. I, um, I want to agree, but purely because I come out well on the other side, I come in. Um, well, sorry, but I was I I missed your question. The well, I mean, it might have just been a compliment, but I think you know a, a way to kind of frame it and to to talk about it is to I, you know I'm curious to know about this idea of um, telling a life story almost in a relatively short collection of poems. This is a 75 page book, and I feel like I traveled a lot of ground with you and got to know you well. Uh, that's an, that's an, uh, that's an achievement, you know, it's not easy to convey all of that to somebody in, you know, however many words, but, you know, poetry, obviously you're working with a really, um, limited word count or you're compressing. And I still feel like I understand, um, who you are in the way that I often will feel like I understand who somebody is after reading a book of, um, you know, like a memoir or a work of auto fiction or something like that. Um, was that your... Was that your idea? Is this the mode that you always work in? Uh, or is this new for you to work in a narrative fashion and in like a really explicitly autobiographical vein? Firstly, thank you. That's really lovely. Um, I'm the same. I do feel like there are some poets that it's almost like purposely they are, they want to keep you at arm's length. Um, and then I just think there's just different styles, but I've always... I have always, or no, I haven't always. I think when I first started writing poetry, I was sort of, I thought that you had to write it in this other voice that's often this sort of Victorian man's voice, <laughs> or this this way that I'm from <laughs> Southeast London. That's just not the way that I speak. That's not the way I communicate. And to make it real and feel real to me, to feel like I was actually being um, honest, and that doesn't mean that sort of everything um is you know like quote unquote true in the way they exactly happened obviously there's 
just in the same way that prose or story works, it's like, or to borrow from Sharon Olds, it's apparently personal, you know, you'll borrow elements from life. But um, I, yeah, I, 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 to, 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 to write in a way that was purposely being uh, obstructive or overly abstract when when that's not what I wanted to communicate just doesn't make any real sense to me um it doesn't um this this the slowness of the writing and maybe uh the the, the ground covered um is probably because it took me so many years to write like this collection went through quite a few iterations and I thought yeah this is ready and it wasn't ready and I was like yeah yeah no this one's ready a couple of years later I was like no it's not ready um and then and then finally maybe after sort of five years I was like no this does this feels like all of these sections perhaps all of these um these sequences I can close the door on a little bit more than I, I I could have before, and so that's when I truly knew that I think that this book is finished. And so, maybe and thank you, and that and I I hope that does come across. And I think it's because it did take me a long time, and to to keep looking at oneself at different points and how that perspective changes, and then how that then changes the poem. So with a, a, with distance and then a little bit more distant, but still being close enough, if that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, I, first of all, I keep thinking to myself, like, why do we lie to ourselves as writers? <laughs> I mean, how anybody who's anybody who's done this for any number, you know, any number of years knows this <laughs> feeling of being like, this is it. I did it. Like, I got it. And then it's like, no, no, you didn't. Mm. You so didn't get it. And you know, it, I mean, it just feels so right. You're so sure of yourself and we have to go through this, I guess. And maybe, you know, I guess that maybe there are some people who, as they proceed through their careers, these sorts of moments, uh, happen less often or not at all, but I don't know. I don't know too many of them. And I know a lot of writers. Mm -hmm. I feel like we, you know, it's very easy to trick yourself into thinking that a thing is done and I'm wondering if maybe it's just a like a necessary step along the way. And then eventually, like, what is it about finishing and, and really being done? Like, what's the difference? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, wh where does that feeling of certainty come when it's actually authentic and on, on the mark? You know what I'm saying? I think, I think it's a great question. And I, again, I don't know for sure, but I suspect it, you know, we can use words like you just feel it in the gut like you just know I think it comes in maybe the same place as sort of like knowing but not knowing like when you're really in love with someone like you know like how do you know you don't you just know it's, it's kind of weird it's like I don't know I just do okay yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's the same with finishing a book you just know you can't explain it but you do just know it's like you fall in love with your book finally that's what it is <laughs> maybe <laughs> And before that, it's just like an amateur relationship. It's yeah, total infatuation. You know, yeah, it's yeah. just infatuation. <laughs> I was also like thinking to myself, like, I wonder if at some point you just like, you know, you're finally just exhausted by it, you know, and you're like, I'm done. But it's not, it can't be just that. You know, it's not about mm -hmm. like. I don't think so. 
I don't think so. I know some people do. If you're in a rush for whatever reason or you're thinking about the noise sort of outside and around the book, then sure, yeah, there's probably writers that do do that. But So this collection, mm. th this is your debut? It is, yeah. Okay. Was published by Picador, is now coming out in the States from Tin House, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. Named a best poetry book of 2020 by The Guardian shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize, the Costa Poetry Award, and the Forward Felix Dennis Prize for Best First Collection. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I mean, like coming out of all these, you know, all these difficult years of writing and these kind of uh, false summits, as I like to call them, where you think you've reached, hmm. you've reached the mountaintop and it turns out you haven't. To, fi <laughs> to finally get to the place where you've, where you've finished it and to have the reception be um, the way that it, that it has been, it's got to be gratifying. So gratifying. So gratifying. I'm very grateful. Again, I feel like I've just said I don't know a lot here, but um, it coming out in the sort of the, the midst of the, the pandemic kind of, I, in a way, made me even more grateful because I could be really quiet with it. You know, with all of this stuff, it sort of happened at, arm's length or as if it had been if 2020 had been a different year or um you know you'd be doing lots of different events in person and and I don't know if I'd have really sat down to be really grateful with the reception that it did have because I think I've just been sort of accelerating and worrying about I don't know what I was gonna wear and say to said event to to kind of celebrate the book you know but really just to sit on one's own sofa and be like Shit, yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty big accolade, and I feel really proud. But then being proud also in a quiet way because you're alone. So it's just I don't know. Do you pour another glass of wine or do you <laughs> go to bed? I don't know. <laughs> the answer is yes, whatever it is. But I feel, <laughs> the answer is always yeah. I feel like uh, yeah, it's a strange time to publish a book. I guess everybody's sort of adjusted. Mm. It's the strange time to do anything. It's not just the strange exactly. you know. It's not just a strange time in publishing, but. There are mm -hmm. some, I think there are some positives. I feel like, and I've talked about this before on the show that writers, um, you know, have a predisposition to, uh, liking alone time and to solitude that I think exceeds most people. So mm -hmm. in some ways I feel like we were, you know, I felt fine <laughs> to maybe a troubling extent, uh, you know, <laughs> with all that the pandemic entailed, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm happy to just keep doing what I basically was doing anyway. Um, but I do think when it comes to the actual publication and, um, like the marketing part of being an author to have it all happen and you're kind of cooped up in your place. I mean, I guess it does take some of the pressure off, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's also gotta be kind of like, God, I did all this work all these years and my book publication just happened to fall in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, I've been doing nothing but talking to authors over the past year and a half who are in that exact situation. And it's hard not to be a little bummed for them. Like the, you should be getting a proper party in London at some bookstore, but you know, what are you going to do? Kind of, like, you know, I like exactly that you just nailed. Like I think my, my happiest place is being cooped off in my apartment on my sofa pouring you know deliberating whether to pour another glass of wine like that is my that is probably my happiest state and it's not to say that I wouldn't love to go and buy very nice shoes 
and use the book as an excuse to to do that um and have uh, uh, kind of a party for a book but my favorite place is to be at home and so in a way like what better place to celebrate the book like really than than kind of where it's written and the place that it came from um so i don't i don't feel that bummed but maybe also it's kind of different for poetry again in a way because there is something that's just quieter there's just not much fuss so maybe if I was like a huge novelist and then my book came out last year then maybe I would be pretty pretty bummed because there's just kind of just more sound around like a big novel but maybe poetry is always a little bit like this kind of like oddball like quiet maybe I don't know it just felt right actually yeah no I get that I get that that's a good point because I think there's like, you know, 50 authors in the world for whom the reception of their book is greeted by, you know, lots and lots and lots of people. So for those people, they're like thinking to themselves, like, I should be at Royal Albert Hall right now, (laughs) receiving yet another standing ovation. But for the rest of us, it's like, I could be at a bookstore right now with like seven people, or I could be at home. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, but you know, that said within the context of a poetry publication, uh, this for a debut has done all you could hope for, I would think, I mean, right. This is the kind of stuff that I think any Mm -hmm. poet would dream of. You're getting published by a major press. Um, Mm -hmm. one of our best, uh, and most, um, beloved indies in the United States, Mm. uh, you're in bookstores, you know, you're doing the, uh, you're doing podcasts. I mean, it's a dream come true for you. Yeah, I yeah with you. It really is. It is. <laughs> but uh, I'm wondering if maybe there's an upside to like a silver lining or some kind of like some kind of maybe not quite as widely discussed as it should be possibility that the pandemic is a good time for poetry because it feels that way to me. Like books in general have become even more alluring to me during the pandemic. I feel like, okay, you know, with all these social possibilities cut off, it's great. I can read and I don't have to feel Mm -hmm. like I'm missing something or neglecting something. Like we're all just at home. So in a way it's Mm -hmm. kind of like a permission to just sort of burrow. And I don't know, I just feel like there's something existential about the pandemic and stressful about it. And people are turned inward to a degree that they maybe haven't been previously. And in that state of mind, I feel like poetry is a natural fit. You know, has there been any sense of that for you uh, in terms of your contact with readers? Like, have you heard from people? Do do you perceive the book's uh, success through that lens? Do you know what I'm saying? Do you think that the, Hmm. the way that it's been received has anything to do with the circumstances that we're living in? Hmm. Um... That's a really good question. I always feel slightly bad whenever I delight in in the or take any kind of like, well, it's been great for me kind of thing. But I feel terrible because it has been really terrible for some people. But um, uh, I do you know how I, I've noticed it most. So it's kind of like around the book. But I also do like a lot of uh, I do a lot of workshops. I do a lot of tutoring, and what I kind of notice most actually is people having always wanted to write and never having the space or the time or the 
the excuse maybe that this is like this, the, the pandemic has uniquely given them. And so I feel like more people are becoming poets, but maybe that's just because I'm already in the sort of, I'm already in the, deep in the, in the poetry burrow. But I've like so many new people coming to poetry in a way like, oh, I kind of maybe always wanted to either read it or write it specifically. And I just didn't until now. So more like newer people coming to, to workshops and just trying it out, you know, like trying out their own creativity. Like I always wanted to do this, but I was at work all day. And so I didn't, or there was this happening. So that's that's what I've noticed maybe, maybe most. And I think that's a really beautiful thing that people can invest more so in their in their own writing and I'm excited for the collections and the and the work and the books that will come out of this you know so in years down the line yeah that's an interesting point I hadn't thought of that and it's making me think that as as things get worse and worse for human beings unless we get our act together of course I'm not closing the door on that I do I do like to hang on to some oh optimism. really yeah okay that's <laughs> Hey, listen, I, you know, I have children. I've got to be an optimist. Maybe we can evolve as a species. But if we don't, and if climate change continues to advance, and, you know, hopefully we can, we can get this pandemic behind us. But you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot that mm -hmm. we're contending with right now. As things, as like the, as things intensify, it makes sense to me that more people would start making art. Hmm. Like that's a, that is a good point. And I think, uh, it's not necessarily like a bad development, you know, it might be like sad that this is what it took or something, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I feel like, Oh There'll my be God, no one around to read it. Yeah. Like yeah. in a hundred years, everyone's <laughs> going to be a poet. Oh my God. You know, everyone's going to have a little collection. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> I feel like you right. and I, this is some kind of uh, epiphany that we've arrived at here. I think we just <laughs> saw the future together. The ice is melting and there's one poet standing on it, I, shouting I, I... <laughs> some lines about, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is what most open mics feel like anyway. <laughs> no, I'm joking. They don't. I think so. I think so. Yeah. I do. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, um, the the kind of poetry that you, that you write, this narrative poetry, um, this is just what comes naturally to you, but I'm, I'm assuming you're also standing on the shoulders of some other writers who have influenced you. Like, is there a narrative tradition that you're working in? There are poets that you can point to who influenced you in this hmm. way. Um, I think the the narrativeness again is something that was pointed out to me. Like I didn't like again sort of really consciously know that this was that that's that's the sort of style perhaps I was writing in. But I think maybe that comes from reading and being in love with with prose. I always love the novel, like always. I read so many novels. Um, the essay as well. Um, also conversations, like I, I really just love talking to people. And so... So, so that even like kind of what we say of ourselves in, in when we kind of verbally talk even and how that hopefully is in the poems. But poets that I love dearly, um, and I don't know necessarily if um, what I love about them is in the work for me, but there's, there's something that goes on around me and I, I hold them very dear. And actually just for the, when you t- told me to bring books to hold up the mic, Fred. Um, Morgan Parker, who's also with Tin House, is I just I I I love Morgan's work. I love her her irreverence and surprise and um, depth. How she can get to you know how she can talk in within three lines about racial history in America, a bad date and, you know, an avocado for breakfast, like in three lines. It's incredible. It's incredible. Um, and the poet that I mentioned earlier, Jack Underwood, is a, a British poet and absolutely brilliant, taught me more about poetry in a pub than I ever learned in any kind of academic institution. Um, he was who was talking about form and formalism uh, this evening. Um but he introduced me to Morgan as 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 well. Um, so just generous generous teachers. Um, I love also Warson Shire, who is now over in the US, but she is uh, a London poet. We still claim her. Um, her work for permission as well. Like I remember having a really shit job that I hated, and then I. We kind of, I think, just escaped. I don't even know if it was my lunch break, but I escaped and I was in a park and I had her pamphlet called Teaching My Mother How to Give Birth. Um, and even the title at that point was like, what? I kind of didn't. It was just very strange and very beautiful to me. And I remember sitting in a park and reading that pamphlet and it's so skinny. It's probably about 15 poems. But just how she how she wrote about the body um, and about 
sex, but also within sort of like a religious, like there's that angle to it um, about not feeling like you're specifically from a place. And I read, I read that skinny pamphlet, and it just changed every everything for me. I think in terms of not only the writing, in terms of like selfhood, I was like, you can write this, you can say this. Um, well, I was just going to say because I, yeah, I was mm. going to say the uh, the concerns of the pamphlet that you were just describing are very much, mm. I would say, the concerns of the collection that you wrote. I mean, there's a lot of crossover, uh, mm-hmm. and. That is the the best feeling. I mean, I think what you're talking about here is representation mm-hmm. on the one hand, but also somebody who's just uh, who matches your sensibility and who kind of when you read their book, you feel a real sense of like, oh, well, this is the way forward. Like I've got a path now. I've got somebody to copy or not copy, but emulate. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I get that. And mm-hmm. it's a relief when it happens because you can otherwise, I think, feel like you're kind of like lost in the woods or whatever. Uh, I want to talk to you about the body and about sex and about religion. Like all of these things show Mm -hmm. up in your work. They show up in the poem that you read at the top of the show. And, uh, you know, there's the, the section about wigs and the concern with hair, which I think shows up in every section of the book, but I think, you know, the wig Mm -hmm. section most explicitly. Um, and then there's also, you know, sex and relationships and, maybe not so great relationships and the um, the letdowns that one can experience uh, like in dating life. And, you know, just, I, I just say it, like, I, I feel like uh, just men behaving badly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, uh, I see it all the time. Let's just put it that way. Like when I'm reading, I'm, I'm constantly a male. I'm like, there's another one, you know, it's just, uh, there's another one. yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, you're uh, you're you're depicting these things um, often all in the same poem, and I guess I would start with um, the body. I'm thinking of hair in particular as like a recurring theme of the book. You talk a little bit about that. I know you said women in your family love wigs. I don't. Think, <laughs> I don't think you're wearing a wig right no, now. No, no, I couldn't. I don't think it's good for writing. Can you imagine having a wig on what you're writing? Oh, hell. Not that I'm writing all the time. I'm wearing one right I mean... now. <laughs> I'm going to need one if I keep... Uh... It, would be, it would be really super oppressive. No, I don't... I, I, yeah, there's some kind of certain glamorous things that you just can't do, I think, if you're a writer. Like really super long nails, you know? It's just not practical if you... By the way, can I just interject mm-hmm. here about super long nails? Yes. So I know this is like a trend. Yeah. This is a trend as I can discern it from my computer screen. Like these young girls with like the super long nails. What is up with that? Like I get it if you're in like a music video, but like as a practical matter, how are you functioning in society like this? I it's been a long time since I sat in a nail shop, so I'm probably not the best person to but <laughs> when I was doing you find ways you find ways to do so if you want like if you have like a tub of hummus you just for example like you so see you won't put your finger in it the way that maybe you would normally which is to be like with the soft bit and not now first but you got your super long talons you go the other way and actually you probably pick up more hummus than you would have if you did it the irregular <laughs> but if you think about that for like all things so 
you know, like. So wait, I, I don't. I listen. You I just learn how to do things differently, different I, angles. I don't mean to go too far into the nail <laughs> phenomenon, but are you suggesting, just so that I'm clear, that you actually use your nails to scoop hummus? <laughs> Not scoop, like go around it's probably because i'm hungry so i'm thinking about hummus but that was maybe a bad example to open the container no no to like so the container is open you you found a way to sort of open it with the super long talons but i mean so like if you were to so you basically just maybe use your nails like you would a spoon but like you've turned the spoon the opposite way than you would have normally does that make sense? I guess so. Yeah, but you're using so, a spoon. As long as you, as long as you're using you... a spoon, as long as you're using no, a spoon, I'm cool. No. I, just, I just don't want you putting your fingernails in the hummus. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> I live alone, so it's just... <laughs> like, I wouldn't be affecting anybody else's. Maybe what I'm thinking about, and I don't know why I went to hummus. Like I said, maybe I'm hungry, but because I remember it being in a nail shop and you asked about hair, but I used to get my hair done a lot—not wigs, but weaves. So you get the kind of the wet sewn on to your own hair. I used to do that a lot. I basically spent my adolescence in a in a hair shop. Um, but the 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 women there used to have these super long nails too. Um, so if they were sort of yeah, kind of moisturizing your hair or putting like hair oils or anything, they would go around the top like the opposite way. And I just found that, but they they could braid your hair. They could braid it down to like your 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 knees and they and fi- just find a way you just I think like all things you just you you find a way and maybe you said about music videos but maybe it's about bringing a music video into your every day maybe that's why I don't know I'm a, I'm thinking of germs you just get too much underneath there I just yeah. I can't right. I can't yes but nice. it looks fabulous it does I will I will say this it is striking I do not I mean <laughs> to each their own I'm just imagining it on myself and I don't, you know, and I have issues with germs as well. The germ part of it is troubling Mm -hmm. to me, but. Is that where the hummus kind of got you? Like that I should be using a spoon. (laughs) Until I said I live alone, you're like, well, as long as you're already. (laughs) If you want to know the truth, if you want to know the truth, what I was imagining was like you and like a couple of girlfriends, like sitting around (laughs) your apartment everyone's got these long nails and you're all using the nails to like eat hummus together. And I'm just, you know, I love it. No, you made like a sort of Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> like it's like a soft horror movie now. That's right. Like, Girls' night. Yes, <laughs> it's a, it's Edward Scissorhands with acrylic nails, and it's very goth, and there's hummus involved. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've just done to myself what I hate when people do to me. I was like, that could, that is a good premise for a poem, you know. Well, and and as you open this, we're talking about. Um, not great man. Edward Scissorhands was an okay man, I he think. Was, he, was he, a was, good, he was a good guy. He was great. Yeah. He was so sensitive. He was. <laughs> Wasn't he? he? I remember the, like, John, he, that was like Johnny was, Depp. At, that yeah. was like Johnny Depp at the pinnacle of his like... good day. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well. But, so, okay. So bad men, uh, sex, which mm-hmm. I like whenever, you know, it's a weird thing. I don't know. It's not a weird thing to talk about, but it can feel weird to talk about it sometimes. And it can feel weird to write about it. And there have been times in the past where I think I've shied away from it uh, Mm. or publicly mused about shying away from it. 
And I got scolded once by a friend of mine who was like, why are you doing that? Uh, I, like, it's like self-deprecation, you know, like, ugh, like nobody needs to hear, you know, nobody needs to read that, that kind of thing. But I always love it when I read it. I always love when sex is in a book. I think everybody likes that um, because it's such an elemental human activity. Uh, I think, too, that there can be some fear about writing about it, not because it's taboo, but because, like, it's easy to screw up. You know, mm -hmm. like you can write, there's the, um, you know, the bad sex award and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's an easy way to get people to sort of snicker when they're reading you. If you do a shitty job of writing about it, like were those challenges for you? Is this something that you struggle with or, or no? Hmm. Oh, the bad sex award is, is so unkind as if writing's not hard enough, you know, right. then we've got a worry there. Um, another poet that I love. Uh, dearly Caroline Bird and uh, has yeah just been it's a real sort of mentor throughout my yeah my, my writing career so far but she said like one of the hardest things to write about no she said the hardest thing to write is kissing um, and then then commence to like make us all write poems about kissing um, and then when we sort of had failed and you know failed better um we, we, we talked about why why it was such a difficult thing is because it's so active, like a good kiss. You should be so in it. You shouldn't be sort of making notes so that you may be able to write a good poem or short story or whatever about it later. You know, like it should be the sort of it's so present and it's so active, just the same, exactly the same as sex, exactly the same as like writing a fight, a fight scene. It's like it's so ridiculously hard because it's so in the body like it's so almost unlanguage i have you heard know? i have heard it said that it is likewise incredibly difficult to write about eating hummus with long fingernails <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a kinetic emotional activity i don't know why i brought hummus i should have <laughs> But no, I get it. I get it. And I think that uh, it's to your credit. Like you, you know, you write it well. And um, I like too that there's a lot kind of happening simultaneously. So it's like human relation inside of like of the same poem, you know, like I'm feeling like sometimes and, you know, I'm not going to be able to pull like an, a particular poem um, off the top of my head. But feel, feels like uh, there were poems that were working at the level of like family concern, thinking about lineage, thinking about being a woman in a family of women or, you know, um, a lineage of women. And then there is, uh, concerns around identity, you know, like you, the poem that you read at the top of the show, for example, where there's this conversation happening between a man and a woman on a date. I'm assuming mm -hmm. the woman is like a, either you or like a proxy for you. And there are conversations mm -hmm. about, well, if the child is, a, if, if we, you know, if the child has brown skin, I don't know if I'll be able to relate to it. Like all of this mm -hmm. over, what is it called? Razor clams? Razor clams. Yeah. I don't yeah. even know what those are, but they sound terrifying. Fancy food at the, uh, on a rooftop, you know, that right. kind of stuff. But right. It's all terrifying yeah. and beautiful and terrifying because of that. Yeah. So I don't know. That, that's just an example. But, mm -hmm. um, and then mm -hmm. I think there's as well. Uh, a spiritual line that will sometimes track through an individual poem, but certainly um, it could also be said tracks through the entire collection that uh, 
I think is tied to your mom and I think it might be tied to your childhood. Like this was the impression that I got that you were raised with some religion that mm-hmm. was pretty intense. Is that right? Or there's mm-hmm. a, and oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's go there. I want, yeah. I love this stuff. So what happened? Uh, um, my mom is, uh, super religious. Um, and that sounds to me cool, but I only learned this like much later when I was even really doing sort of research in and around the book, but an African initiated church. So it would be like Christian. She would call herself absolutely a Christian. Um, but also there's lots of, uh, there's, there's a lot of elements in it that are borrowed from maybe sort of traditional, um, African and specifically West African belief systems and rituals and, and, and things like that. So it is an, it's intense, it was intense for me in the way we'd grown up in that church that it was strange it was often like quite literally in a foreign language um the the hours of it like i uh, like a, a sunday would just be so long we'd go at sort of 10 it was not it's not like a catholic service you know it'd be out in half an hour like a little bit of holy water and then go you know have Sunday lunch by sort of one o'clock it was whole day things there would be so many different services and to and the like growing up and knowing now like maybe perhaps they're my sort of uh sort of imagination because I was often so bored there was nowhere for me to go you'd get a sort of a clip around the ear or if you moved or coughed or fidgeted a bit too much or spoke or laughed or whatever so that yeah I had to go somewhere and the only place I could go was in my head because I couldn't really sort of move or do much with my sort of body or being in any other way and so I just make stuff up in my head that was the only outlet really I had was sitting there for so many hours and I suppose also like the rhythms and the um, the repetition that you get in, in prayer, um, also like fervent prayer, like sort of this almost like violent prayer. In, in a foreign um, language or in like a language you didn't speak? Uh, so, sometimes it would be sort of either, it would be in, in, in Yoruba or it's, it's, well, it would be in English and or it would be sort of in a sort of a, a pidgin English sort of between and sometimes a Creole. So this this... Yeah, also like a mishmash of languages as well. And even when I'm speaking about it, it's like, oh, then maybe it's no sort of mistake, uh, kind of like why why you maybe did become a poet, like being surrounded by 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 repetition, by prayer, by uh, you know, these kind of rhythms that I was both trying to tune out, but they were all around me at the same time. Um and and also the, the 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 sex in the book and the con- the concerns concerns with that I don't know about concerns but sort of the the exploration of that is because they were never sort of separate for me as like also growing up within the church and just how much that church was so uh, 
basically against you being and doing anything, um, particularly sexual. There were so many rules around that. So me sitting there and going places in my head, like often it would, it, I would be thinking about, you know, boys I really fancied or seeing them the next day or what I would be doing if I wasn't sitting there. Um, they were not really separate to me in the same space, like how the sacred is also, is a sacred space also isn't. And, and it will just be, you can, even without doing anything with your body, you can just go there in your brain, which makes it sound like I had filthy thoughts all the time, like I didn't, but I, I there was no real, there's no real separation of where you can go if you're just allowed to be private in your head, especially when you're told that that's the worst thing you could possibly do or go the brain will just go there quicker i think right <laughs> this time. well it's like don't think of a purple elephant you know and then yeah what are you gonna do so it's like exactly i don't know you said it was it called an, an initiated african church an african initiated church is kind of like the it's kind of a lot what those sort of uh all the time at, at least here um in the uk sort of like Nigerian British churches but that, that will have a sort of a headquarters in, in places uh, yeah usually like Nigeria both of your parents um, are Nigerian of Nigerian descent no no so my dad's English ah my dad's near and would never I would never come to church with us he never, he always sort of refused. And any time he did used to come pick us up because there was no no white people ever sort of came to that church. They'd always think he was a police officer that was turning up because they were playing like drums too loud. <laughs> He's like, no, I've come to pick up my wife and children. They were like, what wife and children? Do you see a wife and children here thinking obviously he would have had a white wife and white children? And then we'd be like, Dad, he's come to save us. <laughs> like run outside. Hey everybody, there's a white guy here. It's a cop. <laughs> That is exactly how, yeah, it would happen. I remember going to lots of different churches as well, like the, the same denomination, but different ones. You kind of liked moving around like that. And so they would never get quite, they would never get used to my dad sort of turning up to pick us up. So he would constantly get, uh, yeah, yeah, the, like the cop that he, yeah, he's turned on. <laughs> so I've, arrest some of them I don't know if there's some immigration problems that some of them had and so they were always be quite scared when my dad said <laughs> and he's like the softest the softest like least least cop guy you can possibly come across if, if that's even a thing so yeah there was that so it's yeah there's quite it's just it just was kind of complicated and not not free and you weren't allowed to have sort of certain conversations about certain things and certain things weren't allowed to be explored and so again I don't think it's any mistake where that comes out in in the work that there is that space that poetry gives and allows and it can be a private space in which I can I can say and I can write and I can explore those things that I, I relate to that I think church does that to a lot of people who go on to become writers because it is this place where certain thought and communication is either forbidden or frowned upon or penalized. And, you know, if you're a curious kid who like asks a lot of questions or, mm -hmm. or maybe if you're just a person who's like predisposed towards like, like really intense confusion, that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> 
you know, like I get confused easily and I don't let it go. I don't just go, oh, you know, like I hang on to it and I'm sitting there and pick it apart. And I think in that process, sometimes you can find yourself at cross purposes with a church's ideology or with a priest or whatever it is, because that kind of confusion mm -hmm. is not helpful. Oftentimes <laughs> they want certainty, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. yes. uh, adherence. And so yeah, it's interesting as I hear you talk, though to learn that your dad didn't go. So in your mm -hmm. household, um, I think that there, there's at least some ventilation in that. I think if you have both parents who are super, super intensely religious, that probably takes things up a notch. But if your dad was sort of like, you know, the, he sounds like a nice, gentle father. <laughs> he is. And I kind of say at the end, you know, like the acknowledgements, and I, I kind of maybe with the next book, I really do want to have a look at my father just in a different way and what is it to have a soft father at least they obviously they exist they I have one I've grown up with and I know that there are gentle and beautiful men um but in literature there aren't that many examples of when specifically for me in poetry like it's not if I think about like the lineage of fathers and how poet daughters write about them I think of since modernism, I think of Plath and I think of Daddy, and that's they're all like it's kind of like these, these, these basically these not great men. They just, they, even when they're not there, like even in absence, they're this shadowy, oppressive force, um, of which my own dad in my own life is so not. And I, and I really kind of want to explore that actually next, like that really. I've been thinking about that a lot, like about, yeah, what is it to have a soft father? Like, what does it, you said, like, a, I think you said like an outlet that it's not because if two parents aren't like that, it doesn't become oppressive. Like what, what that does, like what's the, yeah, basically I want to follow the air out of the event and see, see, see what's there, see what's in that space. So everybody listening, you can look forward to Rachel's second poetry <laughs> collection. It's going to be called, He's Not a Cop. <laughs> Due out from Picador in 2024. I swear to God, he's not a cop. That's crazy. Give me time. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome for that title, by the way. I swear to God, he's not a cop. Thank you. That's it. You changed the title. It's going, it's going better. I think I swear to God adds that like religious flair, you know? I swear to God, he's not a cop. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, okay. So, but I want to get a little further along this, um, storyline with the religion because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm imagining you do not observe today. Like you do you go to this church. Is it still with you? I no. know. These, I know you carry these things, you know, they imprint themselves. They do. So. Yeah, they do. But like, where are you? I think I like this question for poets in particular, but I ask it, I mm -hmm. used to ask it all the time. I should ask it more, but like, where are you spiritually today? And the only reason I ask is that I feel like these things whether you're like the least spiritual person, you have no interest at all, you're a total atheist, or you're somebody who has like crystals and like candles all over your house, or you go to church every Sunday. 
I feel like these kinds of concerns are inextricable from the writing work on some level. And maybe mm-hmm. the writing work is the place where all of that goes. But I'm just, do you see the question now, like what I'm mm-hmm. asking? Like, where are you in that way? And how do you orient yourself towards like the bigger questions of like what we are and why we're here and what we're supposed to do with whatever time we have? Oh, what a stunning and scary and huge uh, question. Um, I would say I, I don't I would say that I'm still a, a spiritual person. I still absolutely, I think he, I, I, I feel like, yeah, like you said, like he's connected to the work. Like in a in a poem, anything can be, or you can make anything uh, something else. And so if I think about uh, us and, and the world, I'm like, well, how can something else not be possible or 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 why can't it and then that kind of leans me in a certain direction perhaps uh you mentioned candles as well even just here for this conversation like I lit a candle because it does it sort of calms me down so there's probably that like all those maybe there's a better word but like these hang-ups or carryovers from sort of growing up in a church like I still love the smell of candles like I love the smell I love I lo- yeah I love I love burning them if I could if I was a very rich woman I'd have incredible scented candles all over the house why are they why um, okay okay oh, why <laughs> why are scented candles so fucking expensive what kind oh, of racket is so this beautiful that I know it's crazy but I'm I'm down for that particular craziness they I'm big fan but i would i would fill my whole house if i could that's what i mean though just walk I, from room to room and be like yeah and like now i'm in my sandalwood my oud. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm in my this is my eucalyptus room like I, i'm totally with you i like when things smell Ooh, good the eucalyptus room could be like the bathroom that could be good you want like a grapefruit for like the kitchen it makes it warm yeah, like a citrus you know, like fresh see but i love that you kind of have like a What's the speakers that you walk room from room to room and then they, it kind of follows you? Or is, is yeah, it is I, it Sonos? But like with candles, right? That's, that's what I want. That's what I aspire to. I, and I um, and I'm down with it. I just don't understand. <laughs> it's wax and some scent stuff or whatever yeah. they some essence of eucalyptus. Like this should not be a hundred and fifty dollars or whatever it is yeah. that they charge for these things. It's it's true we should just go to a candle making workshop and then we'll know how to do it and then we won't have to spend yeah that's right extortion amounts of money but we don't and we probably won't and we'll keep spending it i've been through phases where i'm in like a candle phase and i'm like you know what our house is going to smell good we have children we have a dog like who knows like i don't want I, i always growing up noticed when i would go to my friend's house and the house smelled and I was like, hmm. I, I don't ever want to be the house that smells bad. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like you go to your friend's house, you'd be like, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to see my friend, but it just smells weird. Like they need to <laughs> clean this place or something. <laughs> I'm really lucky that I never had like a, a house, but everyone does have their own house smell. I find that fascinating too. Totally. And totally fine. And I think natural, mm-hmm. but as long as it's just but not, not like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, as long as it's not like, I think something died under the couch and, uh, <laughs> Oh, no, that's bad. Yeah, we need to. Oh, that's so good. I need to figure out. I need to figure out scented candles. There's got to be a way on the internet to get like good ones that also last a long time. 
because that's the other problem is that like i'll get one that i really like and so i'll burn it all the time and it's like like three days later it's done you know and it's a it's a hassle to get more yeah i say this while i was looking at mine knowing that it's been on for more than two hours and then it's gonna maybe pull but you know i'll deal with that later um but that may that maybe is like a thing like what is it about and i know that we're living in time exactly like we're saying that that we are living in the scented candle like phase but but maybe i think that that is something from from growing up in the church um it's a really beautiful question, but it's huge. Like, I, but I would say that I, 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 I believe in 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 stuff. Like, I, I don't, I don't like. I maybe I just said it better or less chopped up than before. But I, I think for me as a poet, I would find it very hard to not when I have to, I have to always not know. And so being sort of onto myself saying that no I don't think anything absolutely exists would be uh sort of closing down and not being open and not questioning uh so you're you're saying that you're just kind of open to all possibilities is that what you're saying no no because then that becomes no like what what kind of other (laughs) what what are you talking about (laughs) it just Um, it just feels like it feels like what you're describing feels nebulous to me like you're just i I understand that you don't want to be like locked into some like narrow ideological channel yeah i don't but if you're open if you're too open i could see how that could go sideways as well where suddenly like some nefarious possibilities like suddenly you're open to those too do you know what i'm saying like you do have to make choices yeah yeah I, I, I do think and I think I, I think I explore those in the in the in the poems like um, yeah like where's where is God when you're standing on a balcony in the middle of the night or, or yeah where's where's Jesus as you walk home from the grocery store you know like I think I actually yeah, there are poems that are explore or exploring that. I think I, I, I think, and I tussle with that a lot. Like I, I, I just... wait. Is there a poem in your collection about walking home from the grocery store with Jesus right behind you? Not Jesus, but like my mom saying that you should do certain things, like walk if you feel something sort of following you or behind you. Do certain sort of walk three times around a parked car. Don't smoke till you get home. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay, things yeah. like this. Um, I'm glad it's nighttime here when we're talking about this. But I do, I think I really do believe in a presence of, like, God, I think I would have... Yeah, I think I do. But I, in a poetic space as well, like, I think the minute that people say things like that, that you just think there's some, like, crazy weird, like... I don't know, religious nut job or something. But I, I think that's maybe why I sound maybe too open because I, I do want to maybe just explore spirituality in a way that I wasn't able to before when I was younger because it was it felt very closed. Um, and perhaps the ponds helped me to both explore and open that up in a certain way. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. And I think, you know, as I've been listening to you talk, like not just about this stuff, but about other things too, um, 
trying to think of what the earlier context was, but it's this idea of there being, oh, you know what it was? It was about when we were talking about narrative poem, uh, poetry and like the narrative aspect mm -hmm. to your collection and how you were like, you know, this is something I realized about the collection after the fact through what people were telling me rather than something mm -hmm. that I like preconceived and was trying to work toward. And as you were saying that, it made sense to me. And I was thinking about the ways in which human beings through contact with like repetitive or repeat contact with things like narrative in television or in books, uh, movies, you know, this stuff gets embedded in you. Uh, like every mm -hmm. poetry collection has a narrative quality to it, I guess was like the little epiphany that I had in the end. Yours feels, mm. yours feels maybe a little bit more explicit or like easier to apprehend than it might be in other collections. Like I definitely just felt like an autobiographical story being told in your collection. Um, that, that tracked, that tracked chronologically. But then I'm thinking about, or I'm listening to you talk about like this church experience and how, you know, you love candles and the repetitions probably found, you know, the, the, the repetition that you hear in church might've had like a formative uh, impact on you as a poet. That makes some sense to me. Um, like I've had the thought that like the devotional um, commitment of my parents and relatives uh, to the Catholic church, which was what I was raised in, but which I, uh, don't participate in and haven't participated in since I was a teenager, that devotional commitment, I think has some, uh, correlation to the commitment mm. that you need as a writer to just like sitting down in front of the keyboard, and yeah. like, you yeah. know, lighting your candle and like being willing to just sit there and like suffer in the silence or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. You've just nailed something. Yeah. There's some people, even in school, that would get so bored very quickly. And I'd be like, this is nothing. <laughs> right? Try someone shouting from a pulpit, another language <laughs> and having to sit there for six hours. This is a uh, maths class, a breeze, <laughs> triple maths, easy. <laughs> like, don't understand a thing that's happening don't worry you could just go somewhere in your head <laughs> <laughs> but you know it is it's a discipline absolutely yeah you've just nailed something for me yeah and and it's also um i'm just fascinated by the ways in which like like repeat exposure to these things causes us to have an innate understanding of them and like in a maybe more uh crass or I don't know, more depressing example. Like I think of the ways in which um, social media revealed to me and I think revealed to all of us the ways in which like modern advertising culture is so embedded in all of us to a depth and degree that we didn't realize that as like soon as social media came online and there was like a news feed and you could post stuff about yourself and put photos up about yourself and, and videos, it was like ducks to water. Everybody knew exactly how to do it. Like, you know, like... Yes, there have been some innovations and people have, the, the culture has formed and grown and mutated and all those sorts of things. But I do think there's some line of connectivity between those two things. Like we've been advertised to and marketed to our whole lives. And then we have this, these platforms that allow us to kind of advertise ourselves and market ourselves. And we know exactly how to do it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like there's like, is that, am I crazy? You're kind of giving me a look. I don't no. know. No, not at all. I'm just finding it really interesting. And I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. This is the first time that this has been presented to me and I can see how you can see a correlation. 
And by the Sorry, way, am I doing a weird face? Like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm just listening. I'm just thinking about it. I should just tell the people listening at home that as Rachel is talking to me right now, she's taking selfies uh, and posting <laughs> them. On her, on so her that's feet. why I didn't cry in the stage because I was actually just seeing it too. I just seeing how great I look. And, uh... She's busy live tweeting, but I don't know. I, you know, it's just an obs- It's just an observation. I don't think it tells the whole story, but like, uh, I guess I'm fascinated by those sorts of things, like things that we don't like things that we're kind of expert on, not because we've like applied ourselves to knowing them but because we're so exposed to them that they Hmm. they become like an intrinsic part of us like we have no choice really but to understand them you know what i'm saying like they're enforced upon these like they're like enforced understandings or maybe it's like maybe it's also like tied to some kind of human nature thing like maybe we're maybe we're also um wired for it you know so that when we meet it in in the real it comes easily to us, but I don't know. It's just, uh, things that your book and this conversation have been making me think about. And please keep thinking of it. Is this what you're going to, this is what you can write next. Uh, so if anyone, you've already <laughs> said the title of my book, if I was quick enough, I'm a slow writer and a slow thinker. So I can't think in the moment of what this book would be called, but I think it's, Hey, I think it's a good, I think I write, I mean, I do, I have a book coming out and I think I do touch upon some of this stuff, but, Hmm. um, I guess like, yeah, I guess I think about it most often in social media and digital context, just because that's what's so like ever present in life right now, but it could apply to the religious up, you know, the experiences of our youth, especially these like ritualized experiences, Hmm. um, sort of inevitable that they would echo and you never fully transcend them either like it is like there is some point of no return that you reach where you're like oh i'm gonna be thinking about this for the rest of my life (laughs) do you know what i'm saying like on Mm -hmm. some level like these are like Mm -hmm. maybe not this particular instance or this particular example of a thing but just this issue you know is going to be Mm -hmm. with me it's going to be something that i contend with and um Mm -hmm. you know i guess that's what you know, I guess that's what you would call thematic concerns that show up in a person's work across a career. Like mm-hmm. I would, I would imagine that like themes related to identity, for example, womanhood, um, spirituality, sexuality probably will appear in future works by Rachel Long. That's fair to say. Yeah, right? I think so. I think so. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not, scared or yeah I'm not worried about that like sometimes I speak to other writers and they're like I just can't stop writing about yeah like sex I really want to write about this but I can't I, this is what just keeps coming out and just advice that I've been given and just you're obsessed with the things you're obsessed with for a reason for a reason and you can it's not to say that you you have to stay in that particular thing. you don't you can you can try you can write other things like successfully but you're obsessed with that for for a reason and if you kind of purposely don't write it because you can shoot you feel like you should be i don't know writing a diverse body of work then maybe the maybe it will just be really hard for you to write the other stuff or maybe it just won't ever kind of come out in the wash as well you know, like I, I think in, indulge the things that you want because it's your unconscious t- tell. Like there's a reason for it, 
Um, and that doesn't mean it might morph and change uh, like within our careers, you know, within our lives and, and our perspective on it will be different and the different angles we look at it from. Um, Caroline Verdigan, I've mentioned her a lot, but she said like, even if you, you can write about the same theme your whole life. So she was like, you might be writing about your mother forever. And I was like, oh God, please. She was like, <laughs> you, you, you probably will. And that she was like, as, as long as it's like a prism. So your, your mom is a subject like, as a prism, but you have to keep turning it around so it refracts the light differently. So that each poem, each piece of writing that you produce about your mother will be different in some way. You have to keep turning it round. And I, I think about that a lot. Like if you're writing the same poem or you're writing the same, you know, short story or not, that, that's different. But if you keep turning your subject, your obsessive, it can be the same subject. But they, I suppose that the challenge, the beauty will be in how many different ways you can come at it from. Okay. So it looks different. I think that's wise. Caroline is a wise woman. Yeah. That's a good way to think about it because <laughs> I do think sometimes we can resist our fixations. You know, these things mm -hmm. that we're deeply curious about or fixated mm -hmm. on or that bother us. And we can feel, I think, some kind of arbitrary obligation to diversify our interests. Exactly. And yeah. I, that's probably the wrong way to go. The good thing to do is to just go deeply into the things that obsess us. Mm hmm. Yes, I think so. I, 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 and and how the deeper you go, the probably the more surprise you'll have than if you sort of, I don't know, were shopping around for other topics, sort of cosmetically, because you felt that you maybe should in this in this kind of strange way, which I totally get. But the deeper you go, the more they will perhaps change and the more you'll discover and then the more that you can write and it will feed other things. And also Hopefully. just the energy, the energy that you need to sustain, mm. to sustain the intensity of concentration and creativity and persistence and all that goes into writing a book. If you're not really obsessed with the subject matter, if you're just sort of like, okay, I think this would be something people would like or, you know, <laughs> you're doomed, you know, you're never going to, you're going <laughs> to. You're going to be exhausted in like a week, you know, or, or it's, or the writing I think is just not going to be as good. You, you know, you have to kind of follow your mm -hmm. enthusiasm, you know, and mm -hmm. let that be your guide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe it can be hard because obviously if, if, if it's just something that's preoccupied us since, you know, since childhood or something, we might think therefore it's, you know, I don't know, boring or not interesting to anyone else or any concerns or scares us or, or whatever. So why would you need to, but we're all so different. We're, we're made up so differently. Um, and so it, it, it will not probably be not fascinating to somebody else or, or the, the unique way in which you express and communicate it will be the thing that is interesting and different and new. Or that's the hope at least, right? That's what we were trying to get to. Right. Finger, fingers crossed, right? <laughs> So yeah. I got to ask you, I know you probably mm -hmm. got to go. It's late where, where you are in uh, England. But mm -hmm. I got to ask you about Red Hoover, the Red Hoover <laughs> poem. Okay. 
This is about a day. <laughs> I'm going to try to, I'm going to try it. Forgive me if I botch this, but I'm going to try to no. recollect, I'm going to try to recollect the story that is embedded in this poem. What okay. is it? First of all, what is the poem called? That would be a nice place for me to begin. Let me look. It is. The, it's Red Hoover. Okay. It's called Red Hoover. I just you wanted to. You got it right. You, you, yeah. Okay. So Red Hoover tells okay. a story about a very handsome Nigerian actor with whom <laughs> a woman goes on a date mm -hmm. and she winds up at his place and he just like basically freaks out and is like vacuuming. Is this what's happening? Am I, am I misreading this poem? <laughs> no, you're reading it perfectly. Okay. People don't trust themselves with poems. You're reading Yeah, this is exactly, this is. He's like vacuuming exactly the ceiling. He's, he's going. Yeah, the walls and then the ceiling. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the question that I guess that leaves me with. So like, I'm, I'm trying to picture this like dashing leading man like this. And uh, I'm going to assume this is, is this based on real life? I mean, did this happen to you where a man was vacuuming the ceiling? No. So that poem is uh, like a, a, a kind of a straight on collision between a dream and the real. Okay. And and just what we were saying about church and things. So in in the in the church that my mother goes to, like dreams are um, seen absolutely as prophetic. They are when you go to sleep at night, you're actually prophesying for something that will happen in your life, and and it and it will happen almost in well dreams. Dreams are they happen in sort of metaphor, so it won't you have to sort of. Uh, break it down like a poem and maybe get it wrong <laughs> or try and decide like where the bad luck is going to come from, which exact direction. But, but so, so I've also, I should have said maybe dreams. I forgot until you brought up Red Hoover. Um, but I, so I had a dream about this guy and then I did, I, I told my mom and she then basically told me what that dream would mean for the relationship. Oh, right. And then so I was like, all right, well, which, because, but she does believe them to be real life. So if, if, yeah, if I said, oh, I've met this guy and he's great, but he's, yeah, he hoovered his ceiling in the dream. She'd be like, well, it's not going to work out for you. He's crazy. God's showing you that it's not going to work out. And I was like, oh, but he's so hot. <laughs> um, but then also he was kind of like weird and obsessive. And so in, in kind of like, you know, in the other realm, whichever realm is the real one anyway, um, maybe he did who preceded. And, and I love that the po a poem is a space where both things can happen. I think I wanted it to happen is what I was like. I remember now that you're saying it, I think I wanted to know that there was a person in the world who vacuums their ceiling. Uh, that's why yeah that's why sometimes breaking down the poem is like kind of it's like uh interpreting the dream yeah it's like being like oh well you're just anxious and it's like oh, no but why can't the sky be pink with purple dots and like i want to be in that world still but that's the kind of i realize that the poem and the dream have so much in common right. and sometimes when you break down a poem it can it kind of just or like the the kind of the genesis of a poem can be yeah just more, it can just be disappointing because you want to stay in the in the in the logic in the in the in the poem's logic. 
Right. In the dream of the poem, you know, I, 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 he does hoover the ceiling because I've written the poem that he does, you right. know, like I didn't say there was a dream that I took the frame of the dream off and he does. And so now there is a world, there is a, a room and a house and a ridiculously good looking Nigerian who does hoover his ceiling. And hey, listen, you're, you're talking poem. to somebody who appreciates uh, minimalism and cleanliness. <laughs> I think this guy's a catch. Any man who vacuums his ceiling should get a second look, in my opinion. <laughs> I don't think he likes me that much. That that was also the thing as well. <laughs> it's completely not in the poem. <laughs> hey, oh, yeah, the cutting room floor. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that line didn't work. You know, didn't back. As, yeah, artists, as work. artists, we have to make choices about what to leave in and what to leave out. <laughs> I, I yeah well I I like that you like that poem. Uh, so I have two more. Things I like for playing you. around. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't mean to interrupt you, uh, but I I, no, I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, I mm-hmm. feel bad. I feel bad about the time difference. Uh, like I don't know. Are you a night owl? You're somebody who stays up late anyway, or are you like dying right now? Kind of. No, no. Like I'll go to bed. Like when we finish here, I'll, I'll <laughs> as call as... my hummus and then go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Like, as soon as this conversation ends, I will be asleep within 30 seconds. I'm basically asleep right now. Um, but yeah. I'm interested to know uh, how your family has, have you heard from you? Like, do you talk to your parents about your, your work? Do they read it and give you their feedback? Or is it just kind of something that doesn't get talked about? Like, what's that, what's, what's that like for you? Um, it's a strange one. So... My mum knows about the book, but she hasn't read it. I think she's waiting for me to give it to her, but then I just don't, and I don't see her that much. Like, we talk a lot, and I think that's why the relationship... Well, do we talk a lot? I don't know. Like, maybe we talk, like, once every two weeks, and that's kind of... That's nice. Like, that's that's how that relationship can work, because I think if we see each other too much, then it sort of doesn't. So... I haven't given her the book, so I've been successful in that. I and she hasn't really asked for it. But my mom is not a bookish person, and so I always knew, and maybe this gave me a lot of license for writing the book. That I knew that she wouldn't read. There was no danger of her walking into a bookshop and being like, "You've written a book about me, or I'm in it." Like I knew that that would never happen, and I knew that she, yeah, like. If I told her about this this evening, for example, she'd be like, oh, good. So it's not that she's not supportive, but she won't go in and sort of be like, oh, let me know. And it's it's just, just no, she's kind of concerned. And I realize the older I get, we're just very concerned with different things. That's, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. The older I get, the more I'm like, that's okay. That's all right. Well, it also um, like, also... It gives you some space. It get like it's like. Oh my god! I have space. Yes, I can write these things that that I know. And maybe, maybe there will be a point where she does read it, and there might be some uncomfortable conversations. But I think the way that I thought about it, or tried to make some kind of piece of it, is that maybe those conversations needed to happen. Um, if so, but also I don't write for my mother. I wouldn't want to. Uh, so if she did like it, I'd be quite um, 
I don't know. It's like your dad approving of your outfit for you walk out of the house. And like, they're like, since you're going to be like, oh, well, I definitely need to go and get changed. Like, this skirt needs to get shorter. It's like, you look nice. You know, it's kind of like that. Maybe if my mom didn't like my work, then I'd be like, wow, what's, what am I, what am I not doing here? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm just trying to move away from the point that maybe I feel bad. But my dad did actually, I kind of, didn't tell him about it and then he he he's more bookish so he did walk into a bookshop and he, he called me he's like Rach I think I've uh I, f- I think I've seen your book and then I, I said oh yeah um sorry I didn't tell you about it. And then he wait, like, wait 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 you didn't tell him about it at all no so this book was published your parents didn't even know that you'd written it <laughs> Okay, now we've got a scoop here. I'm a bad daughter. I'm a terrible person. Basically, I'm a terrible person. I'm unscrupulous, and and then he said, "Oh, I didn't know if it was you." And then I and then I turned to a page and I read a poem about me. (laughs) I was like, "Oh, sorry, maybe I should have." And then he was so sweet. He was like, "I'm going to buy it." And I said, "No, you don't have to buy it. Like your daughter is also. I can just give you a copy." He, He was like. He kept on insisting, and, and then so I was like, "Okay, then, then, then do." I think it meant a lot to him. But he also is a man, a kind of gentleman, like I said. But also, he doesn't really say much about much. So even sort of talking to him afterwards about it, he's like, "I don't, I don't think I understood much of it. I think I've got to read it again, kind of thing." And this guy sounds like the was, perfect man. I gotta say, he's he's a good guy. He's a good guy, but he's yeah, just supportive of it and I do feel maybe slightly bad that I didn't tell them about it but it'd been just been private for so long you know it's it's a it, having a book out in the world is strange when all those poems were one just in I don't know somewhere in you and then in your head and then and then they're suddenly not I really I, I did find it hard to sort of say anything to anyone really yeah. I, I'm at that point right now are oh, you? Yeah, I don't mean to make this about me, but like I totally really. No, no, I want to know because I, uh, I, 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 I want to know. Am I a terrible person for not telling you? <laughs> Please tell me. Well, I, I, I have told uh, my folks. I just sold a book, and so my, I was like told them because I'm a much better person than you are. I immediately told my. <laughs> <friends>. <laughs> it's just, it's just a place where I have greater moral clarity than you do. But you know, there's still time, and. Uh, Listen. You know, I no, but I I think like it's this feeling like what I noticed is like I was having a conversation with them and uh, and I've been like a little touchy. It's like, oh, shit, like now this is going out into the world. Mm-hmm. And it's like almost like a I mean, I guess like panic. Maybe that's too strong of a word, mm-hmm. but people start asking you questions about it. It's very personal work. And, mm-hmm. you know, you got if you're going to be a professional, it's just part comes with the territory. You've got to deal with that. But it also, yeah, I mean, like you have to be ready for it. I mean, you have to be ready for the fact that if you're going to put a book out into the world and be in conversation with readers, that they're going to possibly ask you stuff. And if the work is personal and it implicates your family, um, meaning that they're in the book somehow or alluded Mm -hmm. to or depicted in some way, like they might have things to say about it and all Mm -hmm. that stuff, you know, it's like, it just feels strange. strange. Uh, There's something strange about it. And yet, uh, as long as it's not like right up in your face, as long as those kinds of concerns or interactions aren't like immediate, it's easy to, I think it's fairly easy to deal with. Because like you say, books, there's something quiet about a book. 
or about mm -hmm. like 99% of books. They go out into the world, they find readers. Readers might have like a moment of communion with them. And that's a kind of private thing on its own, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The only time it's a problem is like at a dinner or a cocktail party. Otherwise, you're good. <laughs> you know, you I think to... the way you said it about panic as well, like there's sometimes that I do, I suddenly just panic. I'm like, I can never take these back. Yeah. And like, did I get it right? And Yeah. Um, there's also like a rendering of a verdict on a work of art that's very personal that I feel like is absolutely a verdict on the person. <laughs> I know you're not supposed Ooh. to feel, I know you're not supposed to feel like that. I know you're supposed to say, mm -hmm. Hey, listen, it's a work of art. Everybody has their own opinion of it, but it's, it would be very hard just as an example. Um, by the way, did my voice, I think my voice just cracked when I said that. That's how emotional <laughs> I am. Because you're about to cry. I'm it's going, like yeah. The, the panic is coming <laughs> upon you, like <laughs> swiftly. <laughs> I, uh, I think it would be very hard to know that somebody hated my book and to not look at them and be like, well, they hate me. <laughs> I, I, I think that's fair. Or is it not? I don't know when people call books their babies. You're a parent. I'm not. But is it like if someone doesn't like you kid, you're like, well, as a, as a, they must not like me then. I don't know. Is it like that? Kind of. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I just sort of think like, who wouldn't like my children? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if it's, I don't know, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit less defined. It depends on the situation. Like if your kid is misbehaving and they're like five years old and just throwing a tantrum and then nobody likes them. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> we're all, it's actually a bonding experience. We can, we can bond over our shared hatred of this child. But, um, it's like if somebody like genuinely doesn't like your kid and is being like unnecessarily mean to your kid or cold to your kid. Yeah. Then we have a problem, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's those differences. Mm -hmm. But I think if somebody reads a book and has that like kind of confined experience, you know, like where it's like they've read these thoughts and these pages and uh, <laughs> we're revolted by them. <laughs> I feel like it's, it's a clean verdict. That's what I think it is. <laughs> but does that, is that the thing that scares you? Yeah. I just think it's a, it's like, you know, it's, um, and I think that the, the same could be said about your collection. There's like a level of self-exposure on the page that is maybe at a higher degree than some poets, you know, some poets are more, they're buried more in the work. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there's more stuff in, in between them and the reader. And with you, I don't think there's as much of that, which I appreciate. I think there's a courage in that and there's an accessibility in that. And there's a feeling of human communion that I appreciate. That's why I go to books. And I know that people go to books for different reasons, but I like when I feel like I got to know the person who wrote it. Like, what else, what, why, why else are we here? You know, I guess hmm. sometimes you want to escape and read a story about a wizard, but I mostly want like that communion and I want instructions. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, tell me something, you know, like show, you know, shine some light on something and help me figure this out, that kind of thing. Huh. Um, and I think that in my book, it's a similar level of like self-dissection and exposure. Hmm. And, uh, you know, you just got to kind of be ready for people to see you, you know? Mm-hmm. You got to be cool with that. And I guess I am, but I'm also like, I think I'm a human being. There was just a moment. Mm 
where I forget what my parents said. They were just asking me questions and I'm like, look, you're going to hate it. Okay. (laughs) I was just like, they were like, Hey, like relax. You know, I'm like holding a butter knife in my hand, (laughs) but it was right after the book deal had closed. And I was just like getting used to the fact that it was going to be a book. It was Mm going to be a thing in the world and not just this thing on my hard drive, you know, which is Mm -hmm. a much easier mode to be in. So it it was kind of a funny scene in retrospect, you know, Just the there is there so much risk in in what we do, or, or risk, or yeah. Sometimes I joke. I'm like, I write a lot about. I, I yeah. Do we do we have like lots of shame or not enough to to, to kind of yeah. put the work <laughs> out about ourselves or aspects of ourselves out in the world? And I don't I don't know. Maybe I need more shame or less. Okay. Well. A friend of mine said, you know, making art is embarrassing or putting art out into the world. It's, it's just embarrassing. It is. It is inher- there is something inherently embarrassing about self-exposure and like making your little thing and putting it out of the world and being like, hey, everybody, I made my little project. And, you know, and then there's just something embarrassing about that. But I will go to the mat for the rest of my life saying that we need less shame. Hmm. Um. I mean, I guess it depends what you're sharing, you know, but I mean, I'm talking about for people who are earnestly trying to make literary art, like let's confine ourselves Mm -hmm. to this Mm -hmm. kind of project. Mm -hmm. Even if like the revelations that a person is making don't resonate with me, they will likely resonate with someone else if those revelations are made in good faith. And when they do resonate, you know, this as a reader, I know this as a reader, there's something incredibly liberating about that. It's such a great relief to read something and to have somebody show themselves and to, um, you, you know, articulate something about their experience that off, you know, the kinds of things that often go unsaid, right? That's our job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so to mm-hmm. provide even five people with that kind of relief, I think there's nobility in that. Right. I hope so. I think, uh, I don't, I, yeah, I, I feel like, yes, I do, of course. That's what I, I, yeah, of course. I, I'm saying of course, because I think I'm, I have shame and being like, oh, I don't want to say that because that makes us sound really like we're doing something really grand. But I, of course, I believe that I have to. That's why I do, I do. I must believe that somewhere, even if I don't want to say it with a microphone in front of my mouth. Okay. So I understand that. You don't want to sound grandiose, <laughs> but just to, just to narrow it down a bit and to like put a finer point on it. I don't think I'm talking about the kinds of revelations that lead to like grand epiphanies. No, I it's know. like, it's like shining a light on like small little moments, you know, where mm-hmm. you're talking over a plate of razor cr- uh, clamps or whatever, you know, it's like that kind of stuff. Um, but still like honest stuff, the kind of stuff that like mm-hmm. most of us are moving too quickly in our lives or dealing with other things. We don't have a chance to like capture and render mm-hmm. and, and contemplate, you know? And so, yeah, it's like almost like, it's almost like small bore work in a way, but sometimes, you know, you'll hit on something small that like causes a big illumination or there could be some sort of accumulated effect, you know, from a lot of these mm-hmm. small observations you know like a book can can gather force that way so i don't know i'm an advocate for books so what do you no, think no but i i i do i agree and i love that and i and i i'm gonna think about that a lot I'm while gonna... you're eating hummus <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> 
I'm kicking it out. Uh, my... <laughs> <laughs> so last thing I want to ask you, last thing okay. that we need to talk about before I let you go is the, uh, the break Octa- out of pillow into the <laughs> 1836. <laughs> is, is the, uh, the Octavia poetry collective <clears throat> that you are a part mm-hmm. of in London that you, did you, you helped found it or you did found it yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell me about it so that if people are in England listening or if they're going to go over there, they can track you down or see what you guys are up to. Like, what is the Octavia Poetry uh, yeah, Collective? You guys can come over here right now. We can't go over there. Hopefully that will change soon. Um, Octavia is a poetry collective for women of colour, which I set up in 2015. So also kind of when I feel like I started kind of really devoting myself to writing poetry as well. Or maybe I had maybe sort of a year, year and a half, two years before. Um, It started in that I was getting um, kind of just, I was going to more sort of events and things around London and, uh, yeah, in terms of like poetry events um, and things like that. And I would often see and experience just really brilliant, like young women in particular at that time, um, reading and performing their work. And their work was incredible. Um, and just because of the age that I was then and, and, and age of the sort of the people around me, sort of, sort of like uh, early-ish 20s. Um, and a lot of us were on courses, uh, uh, like, MAs or we were on our undergraduate degrees and a lot of us were having kind of particularly hard and uncomfortable times in academic institutions um, in terms of sort of yeah like inclusivity representation like the reading list being really disappointing and 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 things like that and or that we were expected to write certain things that we weren't concerned with you know like a lot of the things that you brought up like write about sex and how that is perhaps seen as more taboo to certain readers if you don't present in a certain way and all kinds of bullshit like that and so we would have these kind of conversations but in the breaks of uh, these kind of poetry nights or on our way walking home to the tube and stuff like that um and it was like I'd had these kind of frustrations and like sadnesses I think as well like I was kind of Quite, yeah kind of really sad at that time on my on my MA um uh but that was not unique to me and kind of what we've been saying when we talk when we communicate you can find something in someone else and and the experiences were just really similar and so I thought that's even though there's there's lots to be said for kind of walking home and having these conversations I thought let's how can I make a space where the frustrations that we are feeling in academic institutions that we don't have to deal with those things necessarily. So if I make a room where we can be for two hours once a month and we don't have to deal with any of that stuff, we can just read whatever we like and we can write um, because that's all we wanted to do anyways. And all that other stuff can sort of fall away. It It won't be in that space. And so... That's how Octavia came about. Um, and then we met. We haven't met for quite a while now, maybe a year, not only due to the pandemic, um, 
this also tie me right in the book and it became something quite quite large to hold it just became more big and more beautiful and I it, it was very difficult for me to hold so I'm kind of right now thinking about what the next phase of Octavia is but at that time and for for quite a few years we would meet each month at the South Bank Centre in London um, and we do just that we would read and we would write in this sort of space that was that felt a lot freer than all of the other spaces that we were reading and writing in at that specific time hmm. well that's cool i think that's a good uh there's a good lesson in that like you know if you can't find the community that you want just form it form it absolutely and you have friends you have friends through this i i imagine right you have like creative Absol oh yes so they're all just stunning poets in their in their in their own right and a lot of them are coming out with their debut collections now or their their pamphlets and it's just it's really beautiful and maybe it will morph in that uh i won't get into it too much but maybe this i think sometimes the success of a thing is measured in how long it goes on for but maybe right now in the space that i'm in maybe maybe it was at that specific time and place and it needed to be then um and there's different ways to kind of support and be there for each other now you do it via zoom now right that's how you do it <laughs> On screen, <laughs> see you know, give a little like blurb on the book. You know, it could be supported from afar. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, different different ways. But I, yeah, that there was beautiful work that happened in that space. That still happens um, in that space. It's just maybe it's dispersed and it's not as as organized. Or maybe you know, after this conversation, I will send an email to all 17 members and be like, you know what? I'm, I, I miss this space. Like, let's get back. To, let's get back together. Like a girl band, you know, <laughs> you, sometimes say. you just need your space. You need your space. You need to go make, make your own singles, you know, marry footballers. And then you need to come back and be like, we need our comeback tour. So maybe, 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 maybe it's comeback tour time. I will tell you that I would be honored to know that this podcast <laughs> inspired the comeback tour you of the be, yeah the, the, the yeah the the, the, the instigator you might have yeah yeah well listen i have i have enjoyed talking with you i enjoyed reading your collection oh, bad and uh congratulations it's called my darling from the lions it is available now in the states and in north america from tin house uh rachel i i uh, appreciate the time thank you for staying up late and best of luck to you on I Swear to God He's Not a Cop. I can't wait to read it when it comes out. <laughs> What's your actual book called? My book? Yeah. Uh, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So you're just great at titles then. Well, I stole that from a poem, actually. So I'm not, <laughs> somebody else is great at titles and I recognized it. So that's what I'm good at is recognizing the <laughs> genius of other people and embedding it and co-opting it as my own <laughs> amazing well there's a whole lineage of like of, of yeah titles that take from poems and also the bible a surprising amount really well you can get yeah you can get into a, like a real kind of google or like hole but yeah i did i did a workshop on titles and just finding out like how many Hemingway loved a biblical title. My gosh, like there's so many. And then Shakespeare, there's that whole thing. But also, yeah, titles from poems. So there's a whole, 
you have you have a big uh, lineage there. You have lots of <laughs> lots of precedent. Uncles and aunts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Definitely. You're now making me think. Think... think. You might be. Yeah. You might be interested in just other 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 people that have done it. Yeah, I'm now thinking though. I'm like, maybe I should have like a Bible verse as my uh, one of my epigraphs. That's so hardcore, right? You like when somebody reads a book and there's like a Bible verse as an epigraph. It's like, oh. It depends which it is. My darling from the lions is from a psalm. It's oh, it from is? Psalm 35. Yeah. So that whole thing of like, yeah, the religion never leaves you, or the yeah. With, but it depends which it is. If it's like a fire and brimstoney one, then yeah, that that's intense. <laughs> It'll be you like get the word darling in there. It's fine. <laughs> It'll just like arbitrarily be like that one line about how like if you work on Saturday, you should be stoned, and people will be like, whoa. <laughs> just a casual opening. <laughs> or if you work on Sunday, I don't even know what I'm talking about. But you know, one of the Bible's many like just completely brutal and like insane uh, you know passages would be funny to include, like just like. As a non sequitur. Yeah, uh, I... Anyway, <laughs> I could talk to you all night or all afternoon. I appreciate the time. I congratulate you. you. Uh, I Thank wish you the best you. of luck on, you know, this next book. And uh, hopefully, you know, you'll have it done and out in the world before too long. Thank you very much. It's been a joy to speak to you. Okay, you guys, there you have it. That is Rachel Long. Her acclaimed debut poetry collection is called My Darling from the Lions, available now from Tin House in the United States of America. What do you know? You can find Rachel on Twitter. Her handle there is at Rachel N.A. Long. At Rachel N.A. Long. I don't know what the N and the A stand for, but, you know, track her down. Once again, the book is called My Darling from the Lions. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode, the entire archive is made available to you, the listener, for free. If you like this program, support this program if you can. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. For as little as $1 a month, you can support this show. There are different tiers. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt or a tote bag, a book club subscription, a coffee mug. I will uh, wish you happy birthday. I will write you a postcard. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You should know, too, if you don't already, that the Other People podcast has its own YouTube channel now. The entire archive of this program is on YouTube. So track the Other People podcast down on YouTube and subscribe. It's free. If you want to write to me, if you have thoughts that you want to share, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. This program also has its own official app. Did you know that? The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's a quality app. What else? I have Louise Nealon on the program coming up next. I've been hyping her in the uh, monologues this month. It's the TMD Book Club author for September. She's the author of uh, Snowflake. Had a great time with her, too. Stay tuned for that. 
and uh, I hope you're doing well on this fine Sunday. 